haven't seen the most recent episode of Game of Thrones? What? Well, if you don't want to be spoiled about that episode, then come back to this podcast after you've watched. Hope you enjoy. Donald, what about you? Uh, any comments on the House of Black and White stuff with Arya? I'm still scratching my head trying to figure out, you know, what, is this just uh, a funeral home? Is that what this place is? <laughs> it seemed like, <laughs> like they were doing mortician work to me. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series. Now, I have to be honest, Matt, before I talk about this chapter, I have to talk about that. I know last week's podcast, we had some tough audio quality, but that was no reason to cut the podcast short when we had such a lengthy discussion of Joffrey One. You're listening to Podcast Winterfell. Clearly, you all didn't listen to my two ARIA podcasts. Yeah. Hey, hey, Matt, we listened. We just didn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. Welcome back, everybody. It's Podcast Winterfell, episode 310 of the podcast, What the Lore Say, part two, where we are looking at some of the features in the season six Blu-rays, specifically the history and lore sections. But first this. Tormund Giants Bane looks like a guy behind the counter at the car dealership service center who's trying to convince you that you need four new tires and a new air filter and a tune-up. Yeah? What do you think? Maybe? Maybe not? Let me know. Send me yours. Send me your Game of Thrones character looks like stuff and I'll be happy to read them on the air we read them for Donald, and he grades them. Usually, he looks at the ones that I write, and he goes, no, nah, it's not it. Or he looks at the ones that you guys write, and he goes, that's funny. Or, yeah, that's totally it. So, keep sending them in to me. We're going to do this all throughout the whole year of 2017, because, you know, I just like to do what I like to do. And you can find more of what I like to do at podcastwinterfell.com. You can also find all of the contact links to send me your Game of Thrones character looks like suggestions. Uh, you can also find podcast app links. And I would very much love it if you could take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you use. The written kind helps me most simply because it, it helps raise my rating in the iTunes rankings or the Stitcher rankings. And also it helps me know what you like or dislike about the show. Maybe you don't like these Game of Thrones character look like things. Put it in your review. Give me one star. Give me two stars. Give me five stars. Give me whatever you feel I deserve. And I'd really appreciate you taking the time to do so. I uh, want to give a shout out to my friend uh, Bubba. That's at Fit and Trim on Twitter. F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I. M on Twitter. He recently uh, updated his review in iTunes. I think he had like me, at me like it two stars. And I'm, he says it's seven stars for the podcast. So I always just took it like, you know, okay, well, he's, he's taking the first five stars 
you know, just for granted. And he's just adding two stars to it. I thought it was a cute little joke. But now he's gone back and he's upgraded it to five stars and saying, I meant to give it five stars. Sure you did. <laughs> but seriously, uh, the Joffrey of podcasts, that's Bubba's Game of Thrones podcast. Check it out. It's hysterically funny. Him and Catfish do great work over there thinking about the show. They also do things like during the season uh, when it airs, they do things like periscopes where you can, uh, as they record their initial reaction podcast, you can actually uh, watch them record and they respond to things you put in the periscope. I don't know if they're going to do that this year, but I think they did it a couple of times last year. In fact, uh, once I started rewatching the show and got caught up, uh, I watched a couple of those and I thought that they were brilliant. They were fun. Um, it's fun to see them make their magic. Hey, uh, there's a, a plug for a podcast and, uh, I'm going to try to in the future, uh, have little 30 second reads, uh, for other podcasts that I like as well. Um, just kind of soliciting all of my podcasting friends like the small council Westeros history of Westeros, um, you know, a pot of casts, uh, Davos fingers, all those guys to just write me little 30 second write-ups so that I can read them, uh, to just give them some free advertisement. Uh, we're all a big community here. We all love each other's stuff. Uh, we don't always agree with each other's stuff, but we all love each other's stuff. So, uh, I'm going to be starting to do that in the future too, hopefully. Um, I haven't yet sprung that idea on everybody, but I am pre-recording these, so uh, I'm going to get around to springing that on everybody. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we're in the Season 6 Blu-rays is the where we're going to be looking at a couple of stories about the Dothraki, both told by Jorah Mormont. And uh, let's get into that next. As I said in the last podcast where we covered these kinds of stories, the Season 6 Blu-rays have an extensive history and lore section. There are actually 18 different stories, and all of them kind of act as supplements to the stories that we've seen or heard on the television show. As in the past, some Season Blu-rays kind of give more detail into the great houses or give us more information on places or cultures. And some just give historical accounts from certain perspectives. And obviously in this series of podcasts, we're going to be diving into a small portion of them at a few at a time. And we're going to try and gleam what we might feel to be important from them. Well, I'm going to gleam what I feel is important from them. And you can feel free to disagree with me. Uh, but if you don't have the Blu-rays, I can tell you that you can find all of them like on YouTube, or maybe you could even just Google Game of Thrones Season 6 History and Lore, and uh, you may get a couple of hits that will give you all of them in one setting. Uh, I think there's like nearly an hour and a half of all of the features combined, so uh, look for that if you haven't seen them, because that's what we're discussing this time, and this time around we're looking at two as narrated by Jorah Mormont, and of course that's Ian Glynn reading as Jorah Mormont. The first one is simply titled The Dothraki, where Jorah gives us a little bit of an origin story about the Dothraki and an important prophecy for the Dothraki future. The doom took Valyria in minutes, but the rest of Essos wasn't so lucky. 
Out of these swarmed the Dothraki, and there were no dragons to push them back. The Dothraki tide slammed first into the Sarnori, who called themselves the Tall Men, and whose ancient kingdom dominated the grasslands of Essos. The Tall Men at first scorned the Horse Lords as uncivilized barbarians, which they were. But Karl Mengo had united all of them into one Kalasar with one aim, to trample the world beneath their hooves and take other peoples as their herd. One by one, the cities of the Tall Men were overwhelmed. Still, they wouldn't unite against the Dothraki. Many didn't believe the tales of the rare survivors. No army could move so fast or strike so quickly. They didn't know that the Dothraki live in the saddle and have such command over their horses that they seem to have four legs, not two. Where most archers fire from foot, the Dothraki fire from horseback. Charging or retreating, it makes no matter, they are just as deadly. But the Dothraki prefer close combat, howling for blood as they ride down their enemies with their Iraqs. And there were so many of them. When Karl Mango's son, Karl Moro, laid waste to the waterfall city of Sathar, renaming it the Place of Whaling Children, the tall men finally realized their peril. Led by a high king, they assembled a great army to break the cars once and for all, and met the Dothraki on what would ever after be known as the Field of Crows. The four cars commanded almost 80,000 horsemen between them. The tall men had 100,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 armored riders, 10,000 light horsemen, and 6,000 scythe chariots. As battle was joined, the earth-shattering advance of the tall men's chariots smashed through the center of the Dothraki horde, the spinning blades on their wheels slicing through the legs of the Dothraki horses. When one car went down before them, cut to pieces and trampled, his Kalasar broke and fled. The chariots thundered after the fleeing horsemen, and the High King and his armored riders plunged in after them, followed by their foot soldiers waving their spears and screaming in victory. But it was a trap. The Dothraki were not fleeing, as the tall men realized when the horse lords suddenly turned their horses and unleashed a storm of arrows. Two more Kalasars swept down on the tall men's flanks, but another attacked them from the rear, cutting off their retreat. Completely encircled, the High King and his mighty hosts were destroyed. The tall men had stood for thousands of years. Now the crows feasted on their corpses, as the Dothraki squabbled over their valuables. The common wisdom is that the Dothraki tide finally broke upon the spears of the Unsullied at Quohor, saving Essos from the Horse Lords. In truth, the days when the Dothraki could threaten the entire world had already passed. The great Kalasar forged by Karl Mengo had splintered into a dozen hordes after the death of the last great Karl, and the riders had resumed their petty feuds. The grasslands of Essos are now called the Dothraki Sea, but no more nations drown in it. Still, the Dothraki priestesses, the Doshkalin, prophesied that one day the Dothraki will gather at Vice Dothrak, their holy capital, and unite once more under the greatest Karl of them all, the stallion who mounts the world. He will lead their people to the ends of the earth and grind all nations to dust beneath them. I knew a Khaleesi who the priestesses said would give birth to this stallion. She didn't. No doubt the Doshkalin had made the same prophecy before and will again. World conquest is an alluring dream, 
but few who dream it ever wake to its reality. Yet could the Dothraki, united behind one great leader, conquer the world? When I first came to Essos, I laughed at the idea. But now, most armies are either sellswords paid to fight, who often refuse to die, or peasants called up from the fields and hovels. How long would those armies stand against the charge of a hundred thousand screamers howling for blood? How well would boiled leather jerkins and mailed shirts protect them when the arrows fall like rain? So there you go. Good old stoic Ian Glenn as good old stoic Jorah Mormont. I kind of want to start with just some real-world historical comparisons because it's been known for a while that George R. R. Martin likes to use pieces of our own world's history and lures for his story, and he then tweaks those events to fit his own world or characters. And this particular story, I think that you do find a couple of places where you can make some historical comparisons. Now, first of all, and this is just in the first half of the first sentence, the destruction of Valeria sounds very much like this great volcanic eruption when you think about Jorah saying, you know, destroyed in seconds. I mean, to me, that sounds much like a Krakatoa or Pompeii or Santorini kind of thing. And when you look back at the season five, when Tyrion and Jorah sailed through the remnants of what they call, quote, the doom, you do get a sense of an area that may still have maybe a little bit of magma activity going on. There seemed to be a little bit of steam coming up here and there. Maybe somewhat like the way Yellowstone, where you still have uh, magma heat of waters and lands there all throughout Yellowstone National Park. And if you go into the various stories about the destruction of Valyria, you can find fables that some kind of great magic that the Valyrians used may have been the source of its demise. But it seems to me from what little we know about it accurately... And again, you have to think for yourself. These are just my opinions. But it seems to me that the most logical explanation for the doom is that kind of like Pompeii or Krakatoa or Santorini kind of situation, right? And because I really didn't spend a whole lot of time covering season five, as you know, uh, let me go back just a little bit further into this and what Jorah and, and Tyrion kind of experienced there. And first of all, how about seeing Drogon, for one? And the reason I bring that up is I want to ask the question, was this just a coincidence that they saw Drogon flying over the remains of Valyria? I mean, is it possible that there's some kind of inherited instinct in dragons now, since um, it seems like most of the dragons were around Valyria, to return to the place where they first started interacting with humans? If not, then where was Drogon going? Um, outside of trying to get as far away from Danny as possible. Sorry, Kelly Underfoot, just had to take one last little jab at you regarding the way Drogon and, and Danny's relationship uh, was in season five until the end. But as another possibility, is it possible that Drogon recognized exiled Jorah in some way and was kind of checking up on him? Or that he sensed Tyrion's wonder about the dragons. And that's a topic that we explored in the third Tyrion episode when we did the character profile on him. So is that a possibility that he just sensed Tyrion as someone who would admire dragons and was drawn to Valyria because that's where Tyrion was. And 
Of course, these questions are never going to be answered, and your guess is as good as mine, or if there's just happen to be coincidence, who knows? But I just love asking these kinds of questions to try and find a reinvigorated meaning in the story for myself. And it does dabble into very Tumblr-y kind of things, you know, but, uh, you know, this is my podcast. I'm going to go off on tangents when I do. Here's another question about the Doom. Who is bringing the stone men there? I mean, obviously the Doom didn't make these people. We've seen, you know, like Stannis' daughter have grayscale. So you have to ask, are the stone men drawn there at some point in the grayscale disease? Is that where they want to go? But I feel like the more likely reasoning is that maybe multiple countries are just dropping them off before they get to the state that they are in when they are attacking Jorah and Tyrion. Um, Think about this one too, though. If the countries are herding them up and dropping them off, and we know Jorah has grayscale, could he be caught uh, by one of these groups that take them here? And, And would he be able to avoid being taken there himself? I mean, there's nothing to say that they haven't been taken there at a much earlier stage in the disease when they where they could be managed without being attacked. Um, and they may be taken there against their will. And that's kind of another historical comparison that you can make is that the stone men of this world are very much kind of like the lepers of our own world, right? Where we had leper colonies and everything and the people were just dropped off. Um, and I've got a little more on Jorah and Grayscale after we listen to the second feature. But uh, anyway, excuse my tangent there. But see how much thought the first half of the very first sentence of this feature can bring? At least on my part. I hope I didn't waste your time with my ramblings, but I love to think about that stuff. And thanks for indulging my tangent, but here's another historical comparison to the Dothraki itself. They're great horse warriors riding out of the east. Doesn't that sound kind of like Genghis Khan and the Mongols? I mean, uniting various nomadic tribes into one great army that rides west and kind of takes what they want. Uh, that's basically what they said this call, call Mango did, right? And you also have this story of how they showed pretty extreme tactical skills, even when outnumbered by the tall men. I mean, all of that because we all think of Genghis Khan as being pretty strategic as well. It all sounds very Genghis Khan to me. And maybe you could even mix up a little bit of the Native American culture into it, and maybe a little bit of the the Persian invasion culture when they were fighting with Greece. And if you want to take that little bit about the Dothraki losing to the Unsullied, you might consider the Unsullied kind of like the Spartans fighting off the Persians for a while. But since Jorah doesn't think that that actually happened, it's tough to say if we should draw that as a direct historical comparison or not. But still, I mean, even if there is a truth to that story and the Unsullied could be the ones that could defeat the Dothraki, when you think about it, there really are no Unsullied left in great amounts anymore. I mean, maybe some cities still have some Unsullied soldiers, but Danny kind of liberated them all, uh, at least the ones that were going up in Astapor and she got rid of the slavers that were raising them so it would be a long time before another really good unsullied army could be created at least in that part of the world the slavers bay part of the world so what you have now is like one of the most formidable forces in the world this huge Kalasar that Danny's gathered up from Vastoth Rock and now they're reunited for the first time since tales of old 
and you have Unsullied all fighting for Danny's side. So that's a force that is just seems overwhelmingly powerful. And that brings us to the other side of the story, which is the foretelling of the stallion who will mount the world. And obviously, we've heard this in the television show before. And the Dothraki culture, I mean, you would we've seen them in the television show have a, a much lower appraisal of the status of women. Uh, that seems to be the prevailing attitude of most of the culture. The Vash Kaleen themselves uh, seem to be the most powerful women in the Dothraki culture. But as we saw in season six, other than ceremonial value in a way, they, they were essentially prisoners themselves. And having to stay in base Dothrak is not what Danny wanted to do. It didn't sound like it was what much of them wanted to do, but they accepted it. And Jorah speaks of Danny in this feature and her heart-eating ceremony in season one, basically, where it was declared that her and Drogo's son would be the stallion that mounts the world. But again, this is a culture that couldn't place that kind of value on women. So the question now becomes, given that we've seen Danny unite these hordes into another great Kalasar, and the fact that she's in the process of leading them to conquer Westeros, isn't it possible that Danny is actually the stallion who will mount the world? And obviously, prophecy is a big part of Game of Thrones. We have the prophecy given to Cersei by that witch about her children. We have Bran seeing a dragon fly over King's Landing in one of his early visions before even getting to the tree. You have Danny's visions in the House of the Undying. I mean, you ask yourself, which of these prophecies will be fulfilled? Will they all be fulfilled if you look at them from a certain perspective? If you believe in a deterministic universe point of view, as I do, as far as this story goes, then it's probably easy to make Danny that stallion, or I guess rather a mare who will mount the world. And I kind of love that too, because even though this was before uh, this all came up, uh, the Vash Kaleen getting the sex of the horse wrong, a stallion versus a mare, is a nice little joke, would be a nice little joke, to the fact that George R. R. Martin was one time called out by fans for making uh, uh, the same horse male in one chapter and then female in a different chapter. So, uh, yeah, the Vash Kaleen, uh, they just got the sex of the horse wrong. Yeah, that's what happened. Just like George did. Yeah, that's what happened. But in seriousness, uh, you also find potential problems with Danny leading this Kalasar to Westeros. I mean, we hear Jorah say that it has been embedded in the culture of the Dothraki for a very long time to take peoples as their own herds. So that's slavery, essentially. And this is the one cultural thing that Danny has struggled with as far as her whole journey has gone, even as far back as with the Dothraki themselves during season one. And Danny has fought slavery all up and down Slaver's Bay. So the question is, will the Dothraki merely change overnight because she is their leader? Or will they continue to want to take people as they conquer them as slaves, say people of the Stormlands? Um, and if Danny tells them not to, could that create conflict within her own ranks? Because I, I really find it hard to believe um, that they could work all of this out off screen. You know, I, I hope that the show wouldn't spend like half of season seven on this issue or whatever, but I really don't want some kind of cheesy quick explanation of a resolve of why the Dothraki would stop taking slaves once they got to Westeros because they didn't stop taking slaves. They even took Danny as a slave until they 
she walked out of a temple on fire. So, I mean, she was essentially the, you know, or was recognized as one of the Vashkaline at very least. So I, I can't believe that a, a quick just resolution to this big part of the Dothraki culture would be very satisfying. Um, even if they do see her as some kind of God or something like that, it just doesn't, doesn't, it wouldn't satisfy me. Just put it on that. And one last note on this particular feature, uh, to have Jorah say that he knew in the past tense, a Khaleesi who we of course know as Danny, as opposed to saying that he knows her in the present tense. So you wonder when is Jorah telling this story? Is this being spoken from a perspective of after he left? Or maybe it was uh, at a time period while he was still in exile, banished by Danny before he brought Tyrion back? Or is this telling us that one or the other might die soon? Um, is this Jorah talking about Danny in the past? Or is this just uh, a dead Jorah talking about Danny in the afterlife? I mean, it's really kind of a trivial thing to speculate on for me, you know, but I, I, like I said, I've got my tangents and this is my podcast and this is my tangent. And, uh, you know, it just seems the past tense just kind of made me take pause because does that mean that Jorah and Danny will never see each other again? There's all kinds of possibilities there. And that's all I have on that first feature. And the other Dothraki feature as told by Jorah in the season six Blu-rays goes a little further into the culture of the Dothraki, specifically at one place, Vase Dothrak. Here's that. Between the free cities and the bones, between the shivering sea and Slaver's Bay, spreads the Dothraki Sea. Named not for its waters, but for how freely its conquerors roam upon it. A traveler on the Dothraki Sea will find few villages and no farms, because the Dothraki view it as a sin to cut into their mother earth with plows and shovels. And the Dothraki know only one punishment. The closest the Dothraki approach to civilization is Vais Dothrak. Though to outsiders, it doesn't look like a city. There are no walls, because the Dothraki believe only cowards hide behind them, instead of facing an enemy blade in hand. But the Dothraki couldn't do that here either. Within the bounds of the city, no one, not even the mightiest Karl, may carry a blade by order of the priestesses of the Dosh Kali. Not that any enemy would be foolish enough to attack the sacred city of the Dothraki in the first place. Two giant bronze stallions rear over the entrance to the city, their hooves meeting in the air to form an arch, the famous horse gate. Through it is the god's way, but the Dothraki drag the sacred idols of the cities and peoples they've broken. Along one side, stone gods look down on you from cracked thrones with chipped and stained faces, their names lost to time. Across the road, monsters watch you pass, black iron dragons with jewels for eyes, roaring griffins, manticores with barbed tails poised to strike, Another terrible beast from every corner of Essos. But there is nothing to fear. If these gods and devils had any power, they would never have ended here. Not all foreign gods in Vias Dothrak are broken. In the famous eastern and western markets, merchants worship their god of trade with the sufferance of the Dothraki, who themselves don't understand buying and selling. 
The Western Market is a great square of beaten earth filled with animal pens, drinking halls, and a maze of stalls and crooked aisles. Even goods from Westeros find their way here, though the merchants who sell them wouldn't know a Lannister from a fray. The Eastern Market is fittingly a stranger place. The elders of the Dosh Kaleen view it with suspicion, and most Dothraki stay away. They aren't wrong. The great elephants, the basilisks and silver cages, and the striped black and white horses of the Yogas Nai are harmless enough. But I can see how the elders wouldn't want their younger members to see the warrior maids of Hyakun, who wear iron rings in their nipples and rubies in their cheeks. Or listen to the shadow men, who cover their bodies with tattoos and hide their faces behind masks and whisper dark secrets for a price. This is all of Vice Dothrak that foreigners ever know. For only Dothraki are permitted into the inner city where the Dosh Kaleen live out their lives. A blood rider, drunk on fermented mare's milk, once told me that the Dosh Kaleen are stewards. They prepare for the day when every rider of every Kalasar shall return to the city. And the Dothraki truly will be one blood and one Kalasar again under the greatest Karl of all, the stallion who mounts the world. He will ride to the ends of the earth and grind nations into dust and take the whole world as his herd. Or so the prophecy goes. Yet the world is vast, with many places a horse can't go. The stallion who mounts the world couldn't rear above a mountain range or leap across the sea. Still, the world has been conquered before, just not with stallions. Now, a lot of the information that we hear in this feature, we've actually gathered from the show as well. And I have to tell you, if you haven't watched this feature and you're just listening to it, um, you should watch it because the descriptions that Jorah gives are great and everything, but uh, they really the animation really puts it the pictures in your head and you, you can see how it all works together. But there, there's still quite a bit to discuss here, even just based on the audio. And... One bit that I don't think the show itself is made known is the reasoning that Jorah gives as to why the Dothraki don't build in the Dothraki Sea. Now, I had always believed that it was just because the grasslands were needed primarily to feed their horses. But here Jorah gives a, a much deeper, almost religious reasoning and says that they believe it's a sin to cut into the lands with plows and shovels. And what that obviously tells you is that there is no agricultural culture within the Dothraki. If they're not going to dig into the lands with plows, they can't grow anything. And that gives a reasoning for the need for this eastern and western market that he talks about. And we've seen the western market back in the show uh, in season one, I think. Uh, that's where Jorah kind of made out that wine merchant uh, that he was someone who was sent by Robert Baratheon to kill Daenerys. We also learned in the show that there there was no swords could be brought into Vase Dothrak. Uh, that was in a conversation with Jorah and Viserys in season one. And then you have this bit about Westeros being able to send goods to this Western market or that some Western Westerosi goods get 
into the Western market. I mean, this really kind of justifies why the attempt on Danny took place there, this rule about the swords and everything. I mean, Robert would have to try and send someone to her in that way. She would be too closely guarded with armed Dothraki anywhere else in the world. This is the one place where you can disarm a Dothraki. Uh, And to use poison is the way to kill without using swords. So there you go. That's the, that, that makes why the attempt on Danny was made there very logical. And then you have, of course, the vanity of Viserys in thinking that none of these Dothraki rules applied to him because he was the future king of Westeros, um, especially the one regarding swords. That's what ultimately proved to be his demise. So, uh, of course, that, that all layers in very good together with, with the show story these rules that uh, are about Vase Dothrak. And you also have that bit about how only Dothraki were permitted into the inner city. And that gives a good logical explanation as to why Jorah and Dario were stopped in their attempt to get to Daenerys once they entered the inner city. I, I mean, I really appreciate how these features lay out the ground rules that create story elements within the show. Um, that's one of the things that I really admire about these. And it, it's all because of a very richly developed world that George is telling his story in, um, that he's taking the time to, to think these things out. And Dave and Dan can lift what they want from that out in order to tell their own story in this world, too. So I think that's fantastic. Now, here's something to think about. Jorah seems to indicate that there is only one horse gate entrance to the city. So, when you look at the horse gates in Season 1 and Season 6, I guess you just have to suppose that the one in Season 6 is kind of like the increased budget of the show, kind of updating their version of the one they had in Season 1. Um, but actually, because Jorah describes the gate as bronzed, um, that actually makes me kind of like the Season 1 version better, because the Season 6 version just kind of looked like stone. I mean, don't get me wrong, the season 6 version was much more impressive as a as a visual upgrade. Um, but I feel like that uh, the season 1 version is truer to the description that Jorah gives here. And I had really had hoped when I first saw season 6, I was hoping that they just uh, came into a second gate, that there was more than one gate. But again, because Jorah seems to indicate that there's only one gate, Uh, I'm denied the ability to entertain that. Um, Then when you go through the gate and and you're at the God's Way, um, there's some great art in this feature. Um, You really need to watch it because uh, this is where you see the the gods. Because you can't really, you can point out some gods. Maybe you could pick out a god here or there. Uh, But just to hear the description of gods on one side, monsters on the other, uh, doesn't really help you a whole lot when you're doing this audio. But as to the monsters uh, on the other side of the God's Way from the Gods, uh, he talks about an iron dragon. Um, We've seen dragons in the show. He talks about manticores, uh, which we've seen those in the show too. If you remember the very first episode of season three, that's what Danny was attacked by, the thing that the little wizard girl released on her, uh, where we got the introduction of Barristan Selmy. And actually speaking of that, in both the show and as far as I can remember the books, the the wizards going after Danny um, seems to have been dropped completely. 
<laughs> so now I'm asking myself the question, going off on tangents as I do, is that storyline still alive at all? Um, no one caught that little girl. So, I mean, are, are the wizards still a potential future threat for Danny? Yeah, bah, rabbit holes, right? Sorry. Uh, anyway, back to the monsters. Of course, we've never seen a griffin uh, on the show, or I don't think in the books. So, uh, hopefully, I'm kind of hoping that we stay out of Harry Potter land just a little bit. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not out there in the world somewhere, right? So that's, that's fun to think about the world as a larger whole. And you get into some of that as well uh, when you get to the Eastern Market. It's interesting not only that the Dothraki avoid this place, but the other thing that I find interesting is that if the Dothraki avoid the place and they're not really buying anything there, why would somebody from the East come and set up shop there? Is it because they are fugitives from wherever they are in the East and they're just trying to make some money to live? Um, and as far as, again, the bigger world thing, the descriptions of the animals, they actually sound much more like imports from Africa to me than the East. I, I guess India, you could say they have elephants and snakes, uh, basilisks, so to speak. But um, the description of the horses, I mean, the horses are clearly zebras. So I'm not sure where in the East you could make that real world comparison. But again, George is just mixing and mingling different cultures and everything. Um, the people that are there sound and look interesting as well in the future. I'm not sure I'd want to take my kids out to see those people either. Um, but the tattooed and the masked people, uh, it seems like they're kind of like fortune tellers in a way, I guess, does remind me of someone that we have met in the show. If you remember Quaith from season two, she had a mask. She was drawing tattoos on people when she spoke to Jorah one time. And speaking of which, there, there's a great theory about Quaith and Jorah and Grayscale. This is where I get back to the Grayscale thing about Jorah. It's out there on Reddit. Um, well, it's probably more a speculation than a theory. Uh, but it's a very interesting thought. Because back in season two, Jorah, when Jorah did approach Quaith, she was drawing a tattoo on the man's back because he was going to sail through the doom or close to Valyria. And Jorah said, I don't need a lesson. But maybe if he had gotten a similar kind of tattoo before kidnapping Tyrion, he wouldn't have gotten grayscale. Maybe that, that protection that Quaith was offering this sailor wasn't so much from the doom itself, but the stone men within is what this person figures. And I mean, if the writer's intended that as foreshadowing for Jorah, you know, three seasons later. I, I really don't find that extremely likely. But still, if they had intended it as foreshadowing, then man, that's pretty deep and brilliant. Um, anyway, this person on Reddit kind of thinks that because Quaith is a person who could possibly prevent the grayscale thing from coming to a person, maybe she's also a person who could cure Jorah's grayscale to allow him to return to Danny's side. Um, anyway, that's lots of fun stuff to think about. It's pretty flimsy, but it's, it's fun to think about. And I, again, I'm going off on these tangents, but I, I do love how the description of the shadow men and the little image, um, or some people might even call them shadow binders, um, seem very much like, uh, Quaith and, and the kind of culture that she comes from. And 
Speaking of fortune telling, I mean, again, we hear about the Dash Kaleen and the prophecy about the stallion who will mount the world. And I love the fact that this time, Jor speaks about how horses are limited, but obviously he's talking about dragons when he says something else, right? And then you have that bit about how the world has been conquered before, uh, where I get the the whole dragon meaning. Um, and I'm really not relating anything new here. I mean, I'm sure that lots of people, lots of you, have had the thought that Danny might actually be the, quote, stallion herself, or rather the mare that mounts the world. Uh, but uh, with the events of season six, I think that it seems more and more likely that way. And uh, again, that's just my opinion. You can feel free to disagree with me. And uh, I think that's all I've got on this particular feature. I hope you've enjoyed these. I'll be back with some closing thoughts in just a minute. So there you go. Jorah and the Dothraki. I guess he probably is other than maybe Danny herself, uh, one of the more knowledgeable authorities about the Dothraki. Um, Jorah did lie to Danny. Do you take him as a narr- as a reliable narrator? I tend to take Jorah as a reliable narrator myself cuz he's just too he's too friend zone not to be. Right? <laughs> anyway, next time uh, in uh, episode 311, we're going to continue this discussion with what the lore say. We're going to do part three, and we're going to examine all of the features that are narrated by a person who I think many of us viewers think will be one of the big bads in season seven, Euron Greyjoy. Uh, and there's a variety of subjects from places that he's visited um, to what the way he sees the, uh, the Ironborn culture is. Uh, it's kind of interesting, uh, and his own twists make it a little crazy, so you don't know what to take uh, as uh, real or not. So we're going to dive into all of that. I think there's four of them, uh, uh, so the, the next episode will be a little bit longer. In the meantime, I am pre-recording these because I'm going to be on tour a lot this spring um, as the dates get released as to when Game of Thrones Season 7 will come then we will try to uh, figure out how I'm going to be able to cover it because if it's happening later in the summer, then uh, I might not be able to do as many in- initial reactions, but I might still be able to do lots of fan call-in shows. And of course, that's always been kind of the heartbeat of this show anyway, is to let you guys call in. Um, keep checking at podcastwonderfell.com for those details, as well as for all of the contact information, like if you want to send me uh, some of your Game of Thrones character lookalikes. Uh, we like to spring as many on Donald as we can, like you heard last week. Uh, we like to spring as many of those at once as we can on Donald because we have a, a limited schedule with Donald uh, in terms of how often I can and him and I can be at the same place at the same time to record or even at, you know, just be at our own computers at the same time to record. So uh, continue to send those in. I, I love the ones that I've gotten. I try to write a few on my own. Like I said, usually Donald doesn't like mine nearly as much as he likes yours. So keep sending them to me. Let's make Donald laugh. Also, if you take the time to leave me a review on iTunes. Again, I'm pre-recording these, but I'm going to 
try to before I release the podcast to update up front where I can thank people. Like I thank Bubba kind of within the podcast, but at very least I will thank you uh, at the front end before the beginning music starts if you leave me a review on like iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app that you use. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. I've rambled and rambled enough, but Axel Foley from the Small Council Podcast is about to tell you how you can contact me and all of the information that I just uh, kind of dud my way over a couple minutes ago. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to Podcast Winterfell. Find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840.